Thanks, Matt. And thank you. Um, thanks for coming. Really great to see such a good turnout at this event. Um, I'm going to just read a few sections from my book and give you an idea about what it's about. But before I start, really, this, this book's a dialogue. It's a dialogue between me and the landscape, and, but also with the people who I met along the way as part of that journey. I spent 23 years of my career working for CSIRO as an ecologist, and I was privileged enough during that time to see many parts of Australia that um, I otherwise would not have got to know. And much of my understanding of landscape and place is formed by doing field work in some pretty unhospitable places. And I'll talk a little bit about that. But first of all, this first reading is from chapter two, How Did We Get Here? And um, I headed up this chapter with a, a quote from a Les Murray poem, which is a poem called Three Observations. And it's a very short line of verse. Murray says, accused of history, many decide not to know any. So how have non-Indigenous Australians started to come to terms with the nature of the land and waters of this continent and how do their experiences and perspectives contrast with but also overlap those of Indigenous Australians? These issues have absorbed me since I arrived in this country in 1994. And an abiding theme in the rolling, rumbling, edgy national conversation about what it means to be Australian is the relationship between people and landscape. Central to this issue are how place confers on many of us a deep sense of our identity and how our notion of who we are is reflected by the ways we interact with the landscape, its ecosystems, plants and animals. For Australia's first peoples, their cultural and spiritual connections with the land are still there, but physical connections have often been severed or drastically changed following the arrival of Europeans. For non-Indigenous people, our responses to landscape have been influenced by the cultural practices, behaviours, concepts and aspirations that we brought with us from other parts of the world. And we've imposed our ideas about the landscape in the West on this ancient land. The first peoples of this continent developed a detailed ecological knowledge of its landscapes, adapted to repeated environmental changes, and evolved rules and responsibilities for looking after the land that led to deep moral, spiritual, and creative attachments. As non-Indigenous people in particular, have become less reliant on nature for our livelihoods and more dependent on landscapes that we manipulate and manage, we have experienced the tension between our desire for control over nature and increased vulnerability to natural disasters and extreme events. Under the paradigm of human dominion, nature is never in harness, only in abeyance. A single drought can wipe out a crop but a series of droughts can wipe out an entire social ecological system. By applying economic thinking 
to the environment, we oversimplify what is a series of complex adaptive systems. The belief in economic growth at the expense of the environment is the most dangerous idea facing humanity. Literature scholar Brian Elliott explained the stages of the development of an environmental consciousness among non-Indigenous Australians. And he said, at first the urge is merely topographical to answer the question, what does place look like? And the next phase is detailed and ecological. How does life arrange itself there? The third phase may be moral. How does place influence people? And how in turn do the people make their mark on the place? The final phase involves subtler inquiries. What spiritual and emotional qualities does such a people develop in such an environment? In what ways do the forces of nature impinge upon the imagination? How do aesthetic evaluations grow? How may poetry come to life in such a place as Australia? Eliot's phases may help us understand two seemingly ir irreconcilable responses to landscape by non-Indigenous Australians. The unsustainable management practices by people who've had close connections with the land for generations and conservation values held by city dwellers who have had no long-term connection to the land. I suspect that people journey through Eliot's phases in personal ways at different paces. For some, the stark pragmatism needed to earn a living from the land leaves little room for sentiment and they may travel only as far as the first two phases. But others may, might walk the whole route in a few days when relocated from the city to a holiday bushland setting, reconnecting perhaps with some half-forgotten landscape of childhood. The next section I want to read is about the three-way relationship between non-Indigenous Australians, Indigenous Australians and the landscape itself with the landscape as an actor in history. How we make our mark on this land and how in turn this land makes its mark on us by touching our hearts and minds plays out in myriad ways. The triangle of relationships between landscape, Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians has shaped our history and will shape our future. Our differences in how we interact with the natural world often eclipse our shared values and desires. A sustainable future for subsequent generations, a commitment to sharing for, each, for caring for each other and the land, a sense of identity and belonging to the place in which we live. According to opinion polls, the majority of Australians want reconciliation with and recognition of this, this land's first peoples in the constitution. Aboriginal activist and community leader Noel Pearson observed, we start with a very deep reservoir of goodwill. And for those of us who believe it is important that indigenous Australians have a rightful place in their own nation, the challenge over the coming period is to engage the rest of the country. Journalist and Wiradjuri Camarilla Roy man Stan Grant writes 
of a declaration of country, a new voice that speaks not only to indigenous or non-indigenous people, but which speaks first to this land, our home. And Grant says, it begins with the first footstep taken tens of millennia ago and continues in the newest born child of this land. It will live on in those still to come. A declaration of country must speak to all of us. The final thing I would like to read is from a chapter called Blackfella, Whitefella. And it's called Every Hill Got a Story, Every Creek Got a Lesson. It's April 2015 and I'm in Alice Springs for the third time in three years. This place keeps drawing me back and I'm not entirely sure why. I'm browsing through the bookshop at Araluan Arts Centre and notice a book by the Central Land Council, Every Hill Got a Story. I ponder the title and why it appeals so strongly to me. There is a connection here between landscape, story and meaning, but the detail remains elusive in my mind. On my first trip in May 2012 to research river red gums in, central, in the central desert, the landscape slowly unfolded itself to me as I wandered from creek to creek, walking, watching, listening, learning to be present to what is going on around me. And I gradually pieced together the web of connections of how this tree supports a whole host of life in this dry environment. Insects, birds, reptiles, small mammals, and people. I've begun to appreciate the sacred nature of the river gum through reading of its central role in some of the dreaming stories of Alice Springs. Individual trees have names and are considered to embody ancestral beings. Old trees pass on their power to younger trees when they die. None of these stories have much meaning for me until the day on that first trip I drive out to the Fink River and walk its course south towards Palm Valley, traversing its dry meanders from one line of river red gums to the next. These lines of trees form when one tree is felled by powerful floodwaters and a series of new trunks sprout vertically and take root from the horizontal stem. As the trees get older, they form long slender islands collecting debris on which grasses and other understory plants grow. These lines of gnarled, mature trees look like groups of old aunties, their trunks bending conspiratorially towards each other, whispering, laughing, holding close their secrets and sacred knowledge of the river and its valley. In the still air of early afternoon, I walk towards a line of aunties and in their shade sink my hand into the coarse sand of the riverbed. Below the scorching surface, the sand is cool and moist. I scrape a handful back and watch as the hole starts to fill with water. I dig another hole and watch it fill. I detect slight movement of the water from one side of the soak to the other and realize this is not just a dry creek bed, but a river that flows underground another secret revealed. A gust of wind rises out of nowhere, sleep, sweeping down the valley, gathering force 
and whipping up flurries of sand and causing the aunties to murmur and shake their leaves. A mob of zebra finches take off from where they have been sheltering from the heat in the understory and head eastwards out of the squall. These tiny red-billed birds are a sure sign that there is surface water nearby. As quickly as it started, the squall drops. The spirit ancestors making their presence felt or just a freak event of nature? Above the valley of the Fink, a pair of wedge-tailed eagles soar high on a thermal. As I retrace my steps, things start to make sense to me of how knowledge is held in this landscape, like a vast open-air library. Every hill got a story, every creek got a lesson. Everything is connected, the sky, the earth, the wind, river, its subsurface water, the river gums, zebra finches, wedge-tailed eagles, and me. I now know why this country keeps drawing me back, and it is not just because people care deeply about it and strive to look after it. It's because this is a semiotic landscape, a landscape of signs, in which I've begun to learn to read by cultivating an awareness of its connections and meanings. The analogy between landscape and library is strong and makes perfect sense to me. I start to understand how indigenous people make knowledge and meaning from being part of the landscape, using symbols and metaphors and stories that may not be literally true or make rational sense from a Western scientific perspective, but that enable them to build connections between all parts of the landscape and its different elements, sky, water, earth, plants, animals, rocks, creeks, and people. In this knowledge system, the elements of landscapes serve to encode knowledge, storing information and memories that exist beyond our brains and beyond ourselves. Making meaning from those elements of landscape and their signs allows us to access the memories and stories they hold. Thank you.